Hey, this is Dr. Mike Barnett. It is an awesome privilege to fill the pulpit every Sunday at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Having you listen to our messages on this podcast is an incredible blessing as well. And I pray that you will be encouraged in the Lord as you listen. It is vital that you commit yourself and your family to the Lord through the ministry of a local church. While it is a great blessing to have you listen to our messages, no one will be able to minister the Word of God to you or your family like a local pastor. So please do not consider this podcast as a replacement for your presence in your local church on Sunday. Be faithful, get connected, and God bless. and happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. Did you hear me? Happy Father's Day. The ladies didn't say amen or anything like that. I, but it is Father's Day, and I'm, I'm grateful to have my dad um, still with us. And uh, I know you're glad to have your father if he's still on earth and not in heaven. I received a, a call this week. About 30-some-odd years ago, I've told you this story before, there was a man uh, who was the grandpa to a family in my very first church way up in northeast Texas, and uh, he was a hard man, a steel worker. He moved down to uh, northeast Texas to work at Lone Star Steel from the Pennsylvania steel mills, and he... uh, was laid off and became very hard about it. And his son-in-law, who was very faithful in our church to this day, is a very good friend, him and his family, uh, said that when we go to see uh, Gaga and Pops, we got to be careful because if we say, let's thank the Lord for the meal, he'll slam his fist down and say, if you're going to thank anybody, thank me. I'm the one who worked hard for this meal, this food. Well, I had enough sense back then, although I was just only like 20 or 21 years old. I wasn't married, and uh, so I didn't have a dear wife to guide me like I do now, but I, I had enough sense to say, you know what, a man will come hear his grandkids sing, and that was even before I had kids. And so his grandkids sang one Sunday, and he came with his wife, and at the invitation, she stepped out and came down to the altar and was gloriously saved. And while we were telling her testimony to the church, he stepped out in the aisle. He was a great big man. His hands were wide. He was a great big steel worker. And he said, wait a minute. And I thought I was a dead man. I, <laughs> I really did. I thought he was going to get me. Really, I did. And so I got the music guy up front of me and all that. No, I'm playing <laughs> But uh, I thought I was in a little bit of trouble, and he, with tears, said, I need to be saved. And uh, so I got in the baptistry and baptized him like this. And, <laughs> and don't worry about that. You know, they float when you baptize them. So <laughs> that's why we're Baptists, because they float. But anyway, he passed away this week, went on to heaven. But he grew to become a sweet gentleman, deacon, a Gideon, a strong supporter of his pastors through the years that I uh, 
were able, was able to know, and, and uh, that's why we're in the ministry. Amen? That's what it's all about. You can keep everything else. Just give me that, and I'll be all right. And so there's a, a lady named Denise in northeast Texas whose daddy went to heaven this week. And so I have my daddy on earth, and many of you do too, and then some of your daddies are in heaven. And uh, we're so grateful for that. And today we continue to preach through 2 Peter chapter 3. I will tell you what I said on Mother's Day. Every text of the Bible is a Father's Day sermon and a Mother's Day sermon. These are the things that we need to be teaching our children. And I will tell you, I can't think of a more pertinent chapter of the Bible today for America and Americans and American daddies and mamas than 2 Peter chapter 3. It's an incredible chapter of the Bible, and we will preach several messages from it and then close out our time in 2 Peter. Somebody asked me, Preacher, when you're finished with 2 Peter, where are we going next? Well, I want to tell you where we're going next. Y'all want to know where we're going next? We're going to spend a little time with a fellow by the name of Obadiah. So start looking him up now. All right, he's in your index, and we're going to spend about six weeks the Lord willing, and, and He allows us to continue the course that I'm on in preaching. We're going to be preaching from Obadiah, looking at some of the great attributes of our great and marvelous God. But today, let's begin the last chapter of Second Peter, and I begin reading verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The second or the third chapter of Second Peter draws a line in the sand for us this morning. It is a chapter that causes division, or rather, it just displays some division. A division that's with outside, outside the walls of the church, a division that's outside the walls of the church and in the classrooms of our universities and high schools and even elementary schools and a division that's even within the church. You and I are standing on 
one of two sides in this division. Either we will agree with and believe and take to heart the ideas and the philosophies of men, whether they call themselves intellectuals or whether they call themselves scientists or whether even they call themselves philosophies. We will agree with them who seek to understand history and predict the future apart from the Word of God. In other words, you could very well be on the side of the division that says, I do not care to know the Word of God or understand it or believe it. I agree with those other philosophies and ideas about the origin of the world and therefore the end of the world. Or you are on the other side where you say, I believe the Word of God. I believe what the Bible teaches. I stand on the truth of God's Word, that we have a Creator God who spoke all things into existence and created this universe in six days and who will one day come and bring it to its end in His own time and His own will. By the way, if you don't know, that's where I am. Amen. And if you're with me, hallelujah. But I want to tell you now, I believe what Peter says here. He talks about the prophets and he talks about the apostles there in verse 2. And he says, we, we receive this truth about the origin of the planet and the end of the planet from God. And I believe that these were the men prophets and apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who pinned down the book for us that tells us the origin of the planet and the whole universe and also its end. And that's what chapter 3 deals with in terms of the false narrative of science so-called that we're permeated with today and the false doctrine of false teachers who walk after their own lust and deny the very Word of God. And in this chapter, Peter gives us a list of things that he wants us to know in light of these false teachers. And the first thing on the list he wants us to know is that in the last days, as we just read, in the last days, verse 3, that we will experience scoffers, scoffers. Now, let me explain to you, first of all, when the last days are. They are now. Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us that the last days began when Christ was born in Bethlehem and will end when Christ raptures His church and we will be in heaven. So we are in the last days and have been for 2,000 years. There has always been scoffers running about and there always will be scoffers running about. We just hear from them more because of a thing called the internet. The people done got a hold of something called Google so they can hear every scoffer that's ever in the world. 
Amen. It's worse now. It's not any worse now. We just hear more of it. Your kids, Dad, your kids have more access to it than they ever have. And so the context tells us what Peter means by a scoffer. He says a scoffer basically is one who argues against the truth of God, the truth of the Bible. Such a one is a false teacher that we've been talking about in this great book. And they're converts, and they turn into scoffers. There's two things I want to tell you about the scoffer in the way of introduction real quick. First of all, we see in this text the method of the scoffer. The word scoffer itself tells us what a scoffer is, what that very word means. It means one who plays with something, one who trifles with something. They ridicule what they deny. They ridicule what they do not want to believe. They belittle it. A scoffer is a false teacher or one who is influenced by a false teacher. They mock at the truth of God. It is a standard debate tactic. So picture, let's say you're in a church and a false teacher stands up perhaps in the church and he teaches a false doctrine. And you recognize it as false because the Bible is very clear that what that individual is teaching and, and promoting is, is wrong and sinful and apart from God's truth and not contained in the doctrine, true doctrine of Scripture. And so you, a solid member, you stand up and you confront them with the pages of Holy Writ and you address them from the, the Word of God and you quote the Scripture. And all the good Baptists behind you say, Amen. And that scoffer realizes that he has no argument against you from the Scriptures that everybody else believes. So what does he do? He starts to ridicule that truth. He starts to put that truth down. He starts to raise questions about it. And he begins to marginalize it. And he begins to put it aside. And he begins to speak of it as an extreme fanaticism. And that has happened within the walls of the church, but is also happening outside the walls of the church. The truth of the Bible today in our country is marginalized. In the 60s, we said we don't want it in our schools. Let's get it out of the schools. No Bible reading in the schools. Let's put it and keep it within the walls of our churches. And let's tell our preachers and our Sunday school teachers and our Christians, you can believe anything you want to about what Scripture teaches. You can believe it all. But just stay within the walls of your church. And they marginalized it because they had no intellectual argument against it. They put it aside. They Ridicule it, ridicule it. Just keep it within the walls of a church. If you want to be a fool, be a fool at 602 Washington Avenue. But don't be a fool anywhere else. And you know what we did? We said, okay, we can do that. And you know what they're doing now. And you're blind if you don't see it. They're saying, we don't even want you believing it in the walls of your church. 
because you're influencing those young kids that come to your church. Years ago, the, an entity in our schools wanted to use the, the building here. We said, sure, you can use the building. And somebody threw a fit and said, I won't let my child go into that church unless they cover up that cross and the symbols of their cross. Well, they can have it somewhere else then. Amen. We're not going to do that here at First Baptist Church. I promise you that much. Amen. It'd be over Glenn Lowry's dead body before we did that. Amen. And mine too. Marginalize it. That's the method of the scoffers. Laugh it to scorn. And then we also see the motive of the scoffers. The Bible says in verse 3, In the last days, ridiculers, scoffers, marginalizers, all that will come about walking after their own lusts. These people who scoff at the truth of God are not truth seekers. They're truth rejectors. Their motive is their own lusts. This is what chapter 2 was all about. It's the motive of the scoffers. It's what drives false doctrine and false teaching. It is not intellectual at all. It may sound intellectual. It may appear intellectual. They may have the letters right after their name like most intellectuals, but it is not intellectual. They are scoffing not on an intellectual basis, and you cannot argue with them on the level of the intellect. It is a moral and a spiritual issue with them. They present themselves as honest intellectuals. But we must not believe what self teaches us about self. We must believe what the Bible teaches us about self and what God says. And so their motive is their own lust. It's not truth. It's not intellect. They're not seeking after truth. The Bible says no man seeks God. They're not seeking to know God. They're seeking to reject God. And we're going to see that very clearly in just a moment. Hebrews 4.12 says... For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the intents of the heart. It is a spiritual issue with them, not intellectual. And so, that's the scoffer. Now we come down to verse 4 and we see an eye-opening truth. This is what scoffers are saying in Peter's day. And I want to tell you, they're saying it today, as we will clearly see. This is what they say. Where is the promise of His coming? Where is it? Where is it? Well... You've got to understand this about what's happening in our culture here in America today and what dads and pastors and teachers, godly teachers, are against. The scoffer's not intellectual. They are lustful. They're not trying to seek truth. They're trying to reject truth, to go after their own lust. Therefore, in order to do that, a scoffer has to do something. The scoffers have to do something. The professors in the liberal left university have to do something 
in order to soothe their conscience for the sake of their conscience. They have to do something. And what do they have to do? They have to reject two fundamental Bible doctrines for the sake of their conscience. For the sake of their conscience and the pursuit of their lust, they have to scoff at two fundamental Bible doctrines. First, the doctrine of creation. And second, the doctrine of consummation. They have to eradicate somehow from their conscience the truth that there is a God who created this universe. Because if there is a God who created this universe, they are accountable to Him. And their lusts is what they pursue. Therefore, they're going to give an account to the God who created them. They have to do away with the doctrine of the consummation, the second coming of Christ, that He will come one day and stand flat-footed on this planet and judge all that's in it. They have to do away with that because they want to live in their sin and they don't want to be judged for it. So they have to eradicate those two doctrines. You say, well, preacher, just because they, they don't believe them doesn't mean they don't exist exactly. But have you ever told a lie so many times you come to believe it yourself? The devil can deceive them and has deceived them. And so they deny doctrines. And I want to tell you how they do it in 2022. You know how they do it? One is an age-old doctrine. It came up in the 1800s. It's called the doctrine of evolution. And the other has been around a long time, but it's still kind of new. Global warming climate change. You came on Father's Day to hear a sermon about climate change. Preacher, you mean to tell me you don't believe in climate change? Well, let me tell you two things. Number one, I believe the Word of God. And number two, I know it's hot out there. I asked God a few weeks ago, God... We're going to close out this message talking about the rainbow that God gave Noah. And I said, Lord, give me a rainy day and a beautiful rainbow so everybody sees it when they walk into church. Instead, he gave me 100 degrees. <laughs> but let me ask you something. You're going to tell me how hot it is and how hot it is. Are you really going to tell a boy who grew up in the heart of South Texas, whose mama made him play outside, how hot it is? Amen. It was so hot down in South Texas that it burnt my hair off. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Don't you tell me how hot it is. I know it's hot out there. Amen. And I'm going to show you in a minute why it's so hot out there. Well, not in a minute, about an hour. That's how long it's going to take. So this, in order to soothe their conscience, instead of coming to the grace of God and, and asking God forgiveness for their sin and following after Him and the glory and the 
blessings he has for them. They go after their own lust and their own sin. And they have to do away with those doctrines of creation because they don't want to be accountable to God and they don't want to have to face him as a judge one day. So this is what they say. What they say is in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? This whole world's been going on and on and on for centuries and millennium. There is no way this Jesus that you people believe in is going to come back and judge the planet. Everything since the fathers died. They're, they're talking about Old Testament people. Everything from that generations long dead has stayed the same. Has stayed the same. Everything has stayed the same. And remember... You cannot answer them on an intellectual level. They will always come up with some kind of science. Whether it's true or not, you have to answer them with the Word of God. Do you remember in 1 Peter 3.15, he said, Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Well, he shows us how to do it right here. You answer those people according to the Word of God. You just fire Scripture back at them. Give them the Word of God. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm not smart enough to debate with those guys. I just want to quote the Word of God and let it take effect. Amen? And so Peter does just that. But I want you to look at verse 5. Now look. For this they willingly are ignorant of. They willingly are ignorant of God's truth. It's not an intellectual issue. Charles Darwin was not denying creation and proposing a, an origin of species based upon his intellect, although he spent, uh, I mean, he, the money he must have spent, the time he must have spent to get involved in the intellectual circles of his day and how intelligent it looked. It wasn't intelligible. He was willingly ignorant of the truth of God. He knew there was a God he was accountable to and would one day judge the earth and he didn't want it. And so he denied it. Well, Peter answers the scoffers by taking them to the Word of God. And he gives them, he speaks of three things, three doctrines of the Word of God that answer such scoffers who do not want to be accountable to the Creator, and they do not want to be judged by the coming Lord. And so the Christ-rejecting intellectuals go to great lengths, and Peter just goes to the Word of God. And verse 5, the first thing he does is he speaks of creation. He speaks of creation. He says, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. He talks about creation. And he throws some light on those who argue for evolutionary theory. There's a, the well-known evolutionist um, Adolphus Huxley. Huxley, Adolphus, was the grandson of Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog. It was Darwin who developed the Bible-rejecting, Christ-dishonoring theory and, and, and 
of, of evolution. But it was Thomas Huxley who pushed it and pushed it. He was the bulldog for Huxley. And this is what he said. He was asked why he believed in evolution. That species could jump species types. And he said this, to prove that there is no valid reason why he should personally not do just what he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, a liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's what he said. I'm reading a book right now by Paul Johnson, a historian. It's called The Intellectuals. And it's about the, um, the philosophers who shaped world history. Uh, and, of course, they are the, the people whose philosophies that tyrants and, and um, uh, despots and, uh, and communist leaders, Stalin and all of those guys, followed after uh, to develop their kingdoms. And they're impacting our culture and our government in our system uh, today. And it's real interesting, every one of them were godless, immoral pagans. Every one of them. It's just a little biography uh, on each one of them, and it talks about their philosophy, and it talks about their personal life. And they were just wicked, wicked, immoral, sinful men. The intellectuals. Huxley, the only reason I believe in evolution is because I want to be free in my sex life from any boundaries. I don't want any restraints on me. He didn't say because science has proven it. He said because I'm immoral and I'm a pagan and I want to live like one without being answerable to God. It's not intellectual. But notice what God says. This is real interesting. By the Word of God, everything was created, and He did so standing out of the water and in water. And this is talking about when God created the heavens and the earth. Before He formed it, He created first a formless void in complete darkness, no light. Let me read to you. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to read to you from the, the book of Genesis. Listen, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So there was just water. God made water. And verse 6 of chapter 1 says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and that was the second day. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And so the waters above created a misty, canopy, just a misty canopy. And then you had the waters below. 
and God said it was good. He liked it that way. As a matter of fact, it was a perfect environment. Man could live for hundreds of years. Isn't that amazing? Some reptiles we know never stopped growing. Well, you had them big dinosaurs back then. Wouldn't that have been neat? I'd have loved to have been living back then. I, I love to hunt and, you know, it would have been pretty neat. Amen? I believe I would have been hunted. <laughs> Goodbye, Miss Tracy. <laughs> and so God had the element of water in the original creation, Genesis chapter 1. Misty, watery heavens above and waters beneath. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3, he just gives them the word of God. And he lets the Holy Spirit take root. And he says, that's what happened. He says, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And then in verse 6, he goes from talking about the original creation based in water to the catastrophe. Look at verse 6. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He's talking about the flood. God intervened in the course of history. The scoffers are saying everything's been the same. Nothing changes. God's not going to judge us for our sin. God's not going to bring damnation to us. God's not going to destroy this planet for sin. Peter says, well, he will, and we know he will because he did. He created it based upon water. And then the flood came. God intervened and He judged the sinfulness of the whole world that followed after their own lust, the whole creation. I do not know how many people lost their life in the judgment of the flood, but I do know God saved eight. That's what I do know. The agent of God's wrath back in the flood was the very element that He built into the original creation water. The whole world changed. It wasn't the same. The whole world changed. Nothing. Lifespan. Lifespan began to decrease. It wasn't the perfect environment for long life that God had originally created. Things changed. After the flood, we had a Grand Canyon and in the Grand Canyon and on top of it and in the underneath, you can find seashells. Amen? You can find seashells. Where are you going for a vacation? We're going to Arizona. Bring me back some seashells. That can happen. God saw to that. God intervened and He destroyed the planet. He did not eliminate it. He destroyed it. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word... The same word that said, let the waters be above and...
are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He speaks of consummation. He says, God destroyed it one time, and He will destroy it again. Mr. Scoffer, you're wrong. God does intervene, and God does bring sinners to judgment. He's very patient, but He does, and He will judge you for your sin. But I want you to notice, but the heavens and the earth which are now. You know what that means in the Greek? It's very interesting. It means the heavens and the earth that are now. The earth you're walking on right now. You're going to walk out of here in about, uh, well, a little bit. And you're going to look up into the beautiful sky and you're going to see this beautiful creation. Those are now. Those are However, it is somewhat different. We do not live on top of a whole lot of water. There's water there. It's held, in, it's, it's held over from the original creation. But about 10 miles below your feet is a raging inferno. Up above us, there are balls of fire flying around that are bigger than our planet. Amen? Ask the scientist. And God says, now the element that will be used to destroy the planet and the universe is fire. Now, however, now the whole universe is kept in store and reserved for fire on the day of judgment and the perdition, the judgment, the wrath of ungodly men. This is future. In the original creation, the Bible teaches us in the original creation that what God built into this planet, water, He used to destroy it. And now since the flood, what He has built into the universe is fire and He will use it one day to destroy with it. But people mock at that. I know if you're here and you don't know Jesus and you don't believe the Bible or are not interested in finding truth, you think I'm the biggest idiot in Ocean Springs. Well, scoffers scoff. That's what they do. It's not intellectual. It's moral. People mock at this idea of, of Christ coming to judge the world. It's been going on a while. Um, in 1982... The um, Atlantic Monthly, a magazine still in publication, uh, had an article, a featured article by a fellow named William Martin. There was the cover. I don't know if you could see it all, but it's a man carrying his Bible, dressed in a coat and tie. I guess it's supposed to be a preacher in South Mississippi. And he's holding his Bible, and there's a big old tidal wave about to come and destroy everything. And the title says, Waiting for the End. And you open up and you read that article. He's not talking about necessarily scenarios for the end of the world. He is mocking the...
mocking you and me, Christian people. And this is what he said. Barring nuclear holocaust or some shift in Israel's status that would necessitate a the numerical properties of which will likely encourage still further millennial speculation. But if Jesus keeps on not coming, interest will eventually crest and recede to await the next promising configuration of signs. On the other hand, if substantial numbers of our more pious neighbors mysteriously disappear and Henry Kissinger or Ronald Reagan shows up on television a short while later to suggest that we have the number 666 tattooed on our foreheads, we might witness even greater concern for the signs of the times and a keen effort to avoid serious missteps. Should that occur, occur, some of us would doubtless lament the fact that we had not paid closer heed to the Apostle Paul's warning. God, the world did not know that of what we preach to save those. God's not. We know He will because. I don't want you to walk away saying, wow. already taken place and God says this while the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease God is sovereign the Bible says in our text that the heavens and the earth which are now are kept in store by the very same word that created it and destroyed it remade it, set it up for what it is now. It's kept by the very Word of God and reserved unto fire. That's what God says. You can trust that God's sovereign. A lot of people tell you, well, maybe God's going to do all this by, by a nuclear war. That's what God's going to do because it just seems like all that fire describes a nuclear war. I don't think so, and I'll tell you. I don't think so, because the Bible teaches otherwise. But
God is keeping in store and reserved. He will spare it until He destroys it. Do not tell a boy whose parents made him stay outside in July all day long in South Texas how hot it is. And I want to share something else with you. Be mindful of the Scriptures. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. We're going to deal with that later when we get further in chapter 3. But that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Remember this biblical adage. Believe, belief dictates behavior for the saints of God. Belief dictates behavior for the saints of God. But for the scoffers, behavior dictates belief. Which is it with you? If you're a child of God and you're saved and you know the Lord, the belief in the Word of God, your beliefs, what you read and trust and believe and have faith in in the Word of God, that dictates your behavior. But if you do not know Jesus and you're not redeemed from your sin, you have it in your heart that your behavior is not going to be judged and you don't want to be accountable to anybody, so you will adjust your beliefs to affirm your behavior. And I do not want you to be there. That's not a good place to be. And then I'll tell you one more thing. Make sure you are saved. Make sure you are saved. This is what happened after God destroyed the planet and judged all mankind for His sin and only saved eight people. You know, throughout the Scriptures, there's always a remnant. The remnant. I heard John MacArthur preach this week in California, and he talked about the remnant. It was very encouraging. There's always going to be, you know, the, the, the way that leads to destruction is broad, and many there be who go there. But the way that leads to life is narrow, and few there be that go down that road. There's a remnant. And that is so true because Jesus said it. And it bears out in history. Out of everyone on the planet, God spared eight, just eight people, eight souls. There was a remnant. I want to tell you, though, you can be in that number. There will always be more lost people than there are the redeemed. There will always be more who reject Christ than receive Christ. Always. And that's why we need to go after the souls of men. They hate God. They love their sin. And we must pray for them. Well, after the remnant got off the ark, God showed Noah this. And God said, This is the token of the covenant that I will never destroy the earth by flood again. 
Next time by fire, this time was by flood. God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. That's us. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. The rainbow. And when we see a rainbow, today, the LGBTQ plus community has robbed us of that rainbow. I want to tell you something about that. You want to know how wicked our country is? We have one day to remember and be thankful for the men and women who gave their lives on the battlefield for our freedom. One day is set aside. You get one day off. But we have a whole month to celebrate perversion. That's how sinful we are. And if you don't celebrate it, Used to, they'd say, well, that's your own business. Now, you're a bigot, you're hateful, and you're prejudiced, and you're everything else you ought not be in this country. That is how far we've gone. That's how far we've gone. Be mindful. Make sure you're saved and you know the Lord. And I want to tell you, when you see a rainbow, teach your kids what it means. But do the whole story. Tell them God destroyed this planet because of rank sin, willful, willful ignorance of His truth in Noah's day and saved eight people. But one day He will destroy it again with fire. Your mom and I are saved. We're going to be saved on that judgment day. Pull that car over when they see that rainbow and share the gospel with your children. Use it as it's the greatest, most beautiful gospel track that God has ever written. And use it for His glory. Make sure your kids are saved. Make sure they have the joy of the Lord. A few years ago, I was brokenhearted when I watched a little girl named Greta from Sweden, address the United Nations General Assembly. Most of the world saw a brave, courageous child. I looked at it, and I saw a sad, bitter, hate-filled, scared, fearful little child because her parents let her believe that a wee little part of creation called man can destroy this planet. 
instead of teaching her that we have a sovereign God who created us and we are accountable to Him and we violated that accountability and we sinned against Him, but He sent His beloved Son to cleanse us from our sin and redeem us and bring us back to Himself and reconcile us to Himself in His Son Christ Jesus and we can be saved and we can serve and we can have the joy of the Lord and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of His Word all throughout our life and one day when He judges this planet, we will be safe and safe and safe. That is what you teach your children. And that's what gives them the joy of the Lord. We're not going to destroy this planet. God's going to judge this planet in this universe. Amen. Folks, that's good preaching whether you like it or not. I believe that. I believe that. And I pray you do too. Let's stand for our song of appeal. This is Cole Andrews, the family minister here at First Baptist Church, Ocean Springs. I want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into our podcasts and sermons today. We surely hope you have been blessed by the Word of God. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com, to learn more about our church. We sure would love to see you in church on Sunday. May God bless you.